Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is your host, Abby Martin. This is the audio of our show. You can watch the episodes on our YouTube channel or at theempirefiles.tv. How many Americans know that Donald Trump is the president of Guam? We all grow up learning the official origin story and history of the United States. What we never learn is what this country really is, the greater United States. This is the subject of a new book by historian Daniel Emmervar, How to Hide an Empire, a history of the greater United States. At a time when reckoning with our history is more urgent than ever, Professor Emmervar lays out, through years of research, the true size of the American empire, how it acquired other nations and hundreds of islands as territories it still controls today, and how whiteness drew the borders of all 50 states. As the title reflects, this reality is completely hidden to those of us living on the mainland. And whatever the empire wants hidden should always be brought to light. So when we first started Empire Files a couple of years ago, we were hesitant to use the word empire because it wasn't really in the mainstream lexicon at the time. And that's why it's so incredible to see your book come out, um, How to Hide an Empire, Daniel. Through all your extensive research, why don't we start off by talking about what makes you quantify the U.S. as an empire? So there are a couple things that we can mean when we say empire. Empire is often used as a pejorative, and I think that's why it becomes such a contentious term. To say that the United States is an empire is to disapprove of it. Um, but empire is also a technical term. Empire is a way of referring to polities that have colonies and outposts. And in that technical sense, the United States has unambiguously been an empire. It's had overseas territories. In fact, it still has overseas territories today, and it has some 800 military bases that it has secure access to. So in that sense, just in the, in the mere territorial sense, it's pretty indisputable. The United States is an empire. Absolutely. You talk about two different maps of the United States, uh, the logo map, which I love, and the map of the greater United States. Uh, can you explain this difference? Yeah. So I think when you ask most people in the United States, to call to mind what they think that country looks like, they usually imagine the familiar shape. You can probably call it to mind yourself. It's the contiguous blob. Canada's on the north, Mexico's in the south. There are oceans on either side. And the thing is that that familiar mental map corresponds accurately to the borders of the country for three years. So there are three years of US history where that's actually what the country looks like. Partly because at the start of US history, in the 18th century and going into the 19th century, the United States expanded through a series of purchases, conquests, and dispossessions of indigenous people. Uh, but also because after the United States filled out that familiar silhouette, in fact, three years after it did that, it started expanding overseas. And we don't always talk as much about that part. It started claiming uninhabited territory islands in the Pacific and the Caribbean. It claimed inhabited Alaska. In 1867, by the end of the 19th century, the United States had a really large and populous overseas empire. It had colonies. And all of these territories don't really make up that much space, Daniel. Uh, why are they so important to understand the true history of the United States? Well, it depends. If you look at the United States at the heyday of its territorial empire, um, right before World War II, and you mashed all the territories together, you'd actually have quite a lot of the country. There's a lot of space outside of the United States, Alaska being the most obvious example of that. But the Philippines also is huge. And I think it might be tempting to sort of round all those islands 
and military bases down to zero. But what my research showed is that'd be a terrible idea because even small spaces, even a military base in the middle of a country, that can be really important. And in fact, these spaces, these parts of the United States outside of the mainland have consistently been on the front lines of its history. And I don't think you can really understand US history unless you've got these places in view. Before we get into this expansion outside of uh, our logo map, let's talk about how the 50 states of the United States were captured in a very similar way to these island territories that nobody knows about. Um, you say in your book that this massive expanse that was called, you know, Indian Territory was really the first U.S. colony and how that and the Louisiana Purchase defined a kind of this notion of what you called a cross-continental apartheid. So, um... One thing that's really important to get about the early U.S. history is how important Native American polities are to it. They are uh, not easily displaced. And in fact, the leaders of the early republic spend a lot of time thinking about how to deal with the fact that they are ruling over a territory that they don't really have full control over because a lot of the land still remains under Native title. And so one thing that Jefferson and those following in his footsteps try to do is they try to deal with North America or the portion of it that's the United States by, um, by implementing a sort of continent-scale apartheid. So Jefferson's vision, and this is what he wants to do with the Louisiana Purchase, is to use all that land claimed in the Louisiana Purchase, to use almost all of it for Native Americans. And the idea would be that the eastern part of the United States, uh, east of the Appalachians, that that part would be reserved largely for white settlers and their black slaves, and then the Western part, that would be nearly all uh, Native American lands. Um, and in the 1830s, the United States actually did carve up a huge part of the United States uh, into what it called Indian country. Uh, this was land that was uh, supposed to be lived in only by Native Americans. White people without passes weren't even allowed to go there. And at the moment it was carved out of the country, Indian country accounted for 46% of the land area of the United States. So very arguably, that's the first colony that the United States ever had, a colony in the real sense. Uh, however, it didn't last very long. Indian country was a sort of fragile presence on the map, and it was quickly whittled down uh, as more and more areas were bitten out of it and white settlers poured in until it became um, what is now the state of Oklahoma. And from the very beginning, Daniel, this wasn't a union of states. It was kind of an amalgamation of both states and territories. Yeah, so the name of the country is the United States of America. And you might conclude from that name that it is a union of states in America. But think about what those words mean. First of all, union suggests voluntarily entered into. And a union of what? Of states. Now, it turns out that from day one, from the first day, that the treaty granting the United States independence was ratified on both sides and the United States officially and legally became its own country, it wasn't just a union of states. It was an amalgam of states and territories. That's how it was on day one. That's how, it's been, that's how it is now. And that's how it's been every day in between. There's a big difference between the Western territories, which are a large part of our history books, and the overseas territories, which are too small a part of them, I feel. Uh, but even with the Western territories, it's important to recognize that they were territories and not states, and that mattered a lot. So the process um, outlined by the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, by which the territories would become states, did something extraordinary. It laid out a, a pathway 
for these territories to become states. And if they became states, they would join the Union on equal footing as the other states. But it also made clear that they couldn't be, get statehood automatically. They'd have to go through a process. And uh, when they started out, they would be under the sole jurisdiction of an appointed governor, basically a colonial governor, uh, and some territorial judges. And this very small cadre of men you know, ruled the territories like despots. I mean, there's no automatic law that people in a territory get to become a state. In order to become a state, they have to win the approval of the existing states. And there's a long history of states refusing to allow territories to become states, even when they have a population that would seem to qualify them for that. One of the most fascinating takeaways from this book, Daniel, is kind of the predication of, uh, you know, white nationalism and whiteness that defined states and, and gave the qualifications to elevate those statuses to states. Uh, expand more on that. Yeah, so it's really important to recognize that white supremacy or the rule of domination by whites um, has been a really important force in U.S. history, but it hasn't just shaped lives within the United States. It's also given shape to the United States. It's decided what parts of the, the country become states, and it's also decided where the borders go. The prevailing logic was a logic of, do these states have a large enough white population? That's what's written into the uh, laws that govern it, and that was the operative logic. And the reason that some territories linger in territorial status for a very long time, for example, Oklahoma, there's more than a century between the time that the majority of Oklahoma is annexed when Oklahoma becomes a state. And the reason for that is pretty transparent. The people who live in Oklahoma are, for most of this history, by and large, Native Americans. And Congress is unwilling and uninterested in admitting a state that is dominated by Native Americans. So we only have 50 states because white people decided to colonize them the most. <laughs> I mean... Right. So, no, that's really true. The history of the statehood is the history of white settlement and the history of Congress ratifying that these areas, these territories, uh, have enough white settlement and have enough white control to be states. Wow, that's extremely fascinating. I mean, it's just so interesting that these states were just as captured and conquered as these other entities, but there was just enough white people to kind of validate them in that kind of cohesive logo structure that we know today. Yeah, no, it's, re it's really easy to sort of tell a sunny story about um, the continental expansion of the United States, and, and that sunny story is about well, this is just a, a republic that's full of states and it wants to make more states. Um, and, and, and doing that, you often paper over what's involved in um, conquering or purchasing land, inhabited land that has um, you know, French people, Spaniards, free blacks, and a lot of Native Americans on it, uh, and then figuring out a way within the, the political frame of the United States to turn that land into something that fits into the political system, that fits as a state. And the, th the magic dust that you, you kind of uh, spread all over uh, these territories in order to make them do that, that's white control. Your book is broken down in a couple parts, Daniel. First, there's the colonial westward expansion, and then there's the offshore territorial expansion. I wanted to see if you could briefly expand on these two phases. Yeah, so I think there's a big difference. When the United States is claiming contiguous territory, uh, the dominant logic is that it will claim territory, ideally territory that is lightly populated enough that it can swamp those lands with white settlers. And the white population growth, the Anglo population growth in the United States is so prodigious that it's actually not that hard 
uh, for the United States to take lands that have some population on them, but nevertheless send in so many white settlers that they quickly dominate the territory. And that's the, the logic that governs the uh, United States throughout its 19th century history. Um, but it looks a little different when the United States expands overseas, um, particularly when the United States in 1898 enters a war that Spain is already fighting with, its, with Spain's colonial subjects. Uh, Spain is in a kind of empire-wide crisis. The United States comes into that war uh, on the side of the rebels, but then at the end of the war, uh, it takes from Spain Puerto Rico, uh, it takes Guam, and it takes the Philippines, as well as occupying Cuba. And suddenly, and at the same time, in a sort of imperial splurge, the United States also helps itself to Hawaii and American Samoa. And, you know, within just a matter of years, the United States suddenly has a large populated overseas empire that it is hard to imagine uh, that all the locals will be displaced by white settlers. And that becomes a very different kind of empire. And it requires a lot of new thinking in the United States about what to do with these spaces that don't quite look like Montana or Kansas. You know, after the U.S. seized a large swath of territories in the Spanish-American War, it was very proud of its new status. It was bragging that, you know, it was, it was uh, akin to the British Empire. Um, it started making new maps similar to the cover of your book, Daniel, conceiving new names for the country, even pontificating whether or not to call itself Imperial America. <laughs> Talk about this. Yeah, so it's kind of incredible. There's this moment of forthright imperialism where uh, important and leading men in the country are just trumpeting the fact that the United States has, well, it's become a different kind of place. Uh, you know, a lot of them see it as the adulthood of the country, the moment when it's finally reached maturity and joined the Imperial Club, an Imperial Club that is already populated by Britain, by France, and by Germany. And so what does it look like? Well, one thing it looks like is that cartographers start getting really interested in remapping the country and showing it differently. And so they issue new maps of the country that show not just the mainland, but also in insets, all the territories that are now part of the United States, which are proudly put on those maps. And it's kind of interesting when you think about it, because at no point in my education did I ever see a map that looked like the kinds of maps that were produced then, because I never saw a map of the United States that had Puerto Rico on it. I never saw a map of the United States that had Guam on it. But boy, in 1900, you could see those maps, and they were really interesting. Um, another thing that happened is extraordinary to me is that writers started to wonder about the name of the country. So the official name is United States of America. Often it went by a nickname, the United States, the Union, or the Republic. These are the general ways that people had of referring to the country in the 19th century. But you know, after the war with Spain, after the United States had taken a lot of large populated territories, um, people started to wonder, are these names really the right names? Is this a union? Is this a republic? Is this a union of states? Those names didn't seem to have the same purchase. And so you can see writers casting about for, for variants or for new names. So uh, the Imperial Republic is one. <laughs> Greater America is one that gets used really frequently. Uh, Greater United States, that's the one that I use in the title of my book. There's a lot of variants like that. And there's also an extraordinary development. So names like Imperial Republic and Greater America, they don't stick around for that long. They sound unfamiliar to us today. But there is a shift that is important. In the 19th century, 
when people referred to the country, they called it the Union, they called it the Republic, and they called it the United States, but they did not often call it America. They called the people who lived in it Americans, and sometimes they called it America. After 1898 and after the war with Spain, that changes really dramatically. The first president who takes office after the war with Spain is Teddy Roosevelt. He uses America in his first annual message. He uses it left, right, and center. I found a, a two-week period where he uses it in separate speeches more than every past president combined had. Uh, and, and after him, it's off to the races. That's a, just a normal way to refer to the country. And part of the reason for that switch is uh, America is a more capacious term. America does not commit you to a political description. America doesn't say this is a union of states. America is a broader term and one that's a little easier to say in the same sentence as America is an empire. Right, right. I kind of wish imperial America stuck, though, because then it would be easier to explain to people what the situation is uh, you know, yeah, 100 plus years the later. Republic. Yeah. One thing I should also mention with this is you can see exactly the same um, thing happen in, in songs about the country. You know, Battle Cry of Freedom, Yankee Doodle, Star Spangled Banner. What's interesting about all these songs is they don't mention America in their lyrics, you know, which is kind of incredible. You think, wow, the Star Spangled Banner, that's the national anthem doesn't actually have the word America in it. But after 1898, that switches too. That's when you start seeing different kinds of songs like God Bless America and America the Beautiful. The Guano Islands are a really important part of this story as well. Uh, can you talk about what they are, what they were used for, and how did they become kind of the legal basis of U.S. empire? Yeah, so it's important to recognize that um, the U.S. empire includes large colonies but it also includes a lot of islands, and some of them can be quite small and some of them unpopulated. In fact, that's the start of the United States' overseas empire. So uh, the history of U.S. expansion is a history of a set of conquests and annexations uh, in the North American continent uh, that terminate in 1854 with the Gadsden Purchase, just a little sliver of land uh, on the U.S.-Mexican border that fills out the uh, familiar silhouette of the United States, that fills out that profile. Three years later, when the United States expands overseas, it starts claiming uninhabited islands. And the reason it does so is really interesting. The reason it starts claiming islands is that it is seeking what is on those islands. It is seeking guano. In this case, the United States is having an agricultural crisis as it's transitioned to, agri uh, to industrial agriculture. And one of the things that works really well to save these farms, and these farms are a huge part of the U.S. economy, uh, is seabird droppings from islands, relatively uh, rainless islands in the Caribbean or the Pacific, you know, with, at the behest of U.S. farmers, the United States just seeks out as many of these islands, uninhabited islands as it can find, ultimately claiming nearly 100 uh, in the latter half of the 19th century. And these become the first overseas holdings that the United States has. And it's really interesting because, you know, up until then, the United States had always argued about, you know, should we take, you know, Louisiana Purchase, uh, how much of Mexico, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, here, there's just a single law. It's called the Guano Islands Act, and it says that any uninhabited islands that anyone sees that has guano on it can be annexed to the United States, uh, and it will be considered as appertaining to the, to the country. Uh, and there's just a sort of quick formal process, and boom, you know, this island is suddenly part of the United States. And you know, there's a, Supreme, there's a Supreme Court case about this, so there's a question about the constitutionality, but the Supreme Court signs off on it, and ultimately, 
this becomes the legal basis for a much larger and you know enduring U.S. overseas empire because just that little you know phrase, these islands will be considered as appertaining to the United States. That just gives away the game because suddenly the United States can expand overseas, and it is precisely on this legal precedent that the United States takes far larger colonies like the Philippines. Then we get to World War II, Daniel, which is interesting because your book actually begins with the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the event that was used to justify U.S. involvement in the war. Talk about what happened and its significance. There are three dates in U.S. history that most people in the country know. So they know July 4th, 1776, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. They know September 11th, 2001. And they also know December 7th, 1841, the date which will live in infamy, when if you ask most people what happened on that day, they will say that's when Japan attacked the United States at Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was at that point in the territory of Hawaii. And that event has become such a constitutive part of national history, of national myth. There are movies made about it. Uh, but what those movies rarely show is what happens next. Because Japan didn't just attack uh, the territory of Hawaii. This was part of a intended to be simultaneous sort of all empire attack where within a matter of hours, Japan attacked Hawaii, Wake Island, Guam, and the largest territory that the United States ever held, the Philippines. Uh, it also attacked the British territories of Hong Kong and Malaya and the independent kingdom of Thailand. I mean, the whole point of this was that Japan was trying to sweep the leg of European and Anglophone empires in order to um, get room to expand within the Pacific. Uh, so, you know, militarily, the damage done to the Philippines was arguably just as bad as the damage done uh, to Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. And, you know, people didn't know how to talk about this. They didn't know how to refer to what had just happened. Um, the, we have a term for it, Pearl Harbor, but that term wasn't available at the time. It's not until a couple days later that you start hearing um, descriptions of the event as Pearl Harbor. So, you know, if you see newspapers that are, you know, composed within hours of this, they'll say things like, Japan attacked Guam and Hawaii, or Japan attacked Hawaii and the Philippines. That's also exactly how FDR describes it uh, in the first draft of his date, which will live in infamy speech. It's an attack on Hawaii and the Philippines. Uh, and then he changes his description of the main target. So this event is no longer narrated as an attack on these two large colonies, uh, Hawaii and the Philippines. It's now an attack on the territory of Hawaii specifically. And now you have this question, why? Why did FDR change how he was narrating the target of the attack? He still mentioned the Philippines, but nevertheless, FDR clearly focused the attention of his audience on Hawaii. Even Hawaii was a little wobbly. Uh, it's a territory like the Philippines and Guam, uh, but it has a larger white population. And that made it easier for people in the United States to imagine it as part of the United States. But Fortune magazine did a survey in 1940 asking its readers, would they support a defense of Hawaii? And uh, its readers, barely a majority of them said yes. So you can see that FDR not only doesn't want to test his audience with the Philippines, but is even worried about Hawaii too. The last edit he makes to the speech between the last paper draft that we have and the spoken version that he delivered, um, he makes a final edit and he, he inserts the word American before his description of the hmm. target. So that uh, Japan didn't attack the island of Oahu, it attacked the American island of Oahu. And FDR, you can see him just sort of pushing that a little bit, just trying to round Hawaii up to American in the eyes of his audience so that he can deliver a clear story. 
the empire of Japan attacked the United States of America and it's time for war. On this show, we often reference the U.S. dropping the nuclear bombs on Japan as kind of a, a really important moment for the U.S. empire to assert itself as the world power, um, kind of installing a new world order, as you can say. But at the same time, your book explains that the U.S. was kind of distancing itself from its colonial territories. The Philippines had gained independence, Alaska, Hawaii became states. Why shed power at the same time it had gained so much? Yeah, so it's really interesting what the United States does, because up until largely World War II, the pattern had been when countries get more powerful, they get larger. They just seize more territory. That's what the British Empire had done. That's what its predecessors had done. And the United States, at the end of World War II, is kind of in an extraordinary position. It has atomic bombs. No one else has them. It has uh, a, you know, extraordinarily strong military. It has a, a system of bases that extend all over the planet. And it also has claims, either as colonies or more largely as occupied territories, quite a lot of people. So if you actually look at all of the lands that the United States has outside of the mainland, all of the places over which it exerts jurisdiction, all the places where the stars and stripe flies, you see that actually the United States controls more people outside of the states than in. There's a larger population beyond the mainland than there is in the mainland. There's a larger population outside of the states than in the states. And so that raises a really interesting question. Why didn't the United States double down? Why didn't it start going on an imperial shopping spree, doing what Britain would have done in the 19th century? And I think there are two answers to that question. One answer is anti-imperial resistance. Uh, colonized people throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century have been gathering force, organizing, and after World War II, getting arms. Uh, they drove the cost of colonialism up. It was harder to take colonies, especially new colonies, after 1945 uh, than it had been in, you know, say, 1850. Uh, and there's another part of the story, too. At the same time, the United States had gotten really good in World War II at what I call empire-killing technologies, ways of projecting force across borders, uh, projecting influence across borders, rather than by trying to claim influence by extending borders, i.e., by taking new territory. Uh, and so that, those empire-killing technologies, drove the demand for colonies down. And the combination of those two things, anti-imperial revolt and new technologies, uh, making it easier for the United States to do what it wanted without claiming large colonies, that resulted in a new footprint of power uh, where the United States didn't seek large populated territories, but just sought instead dots, just uh, military bases, hundreds of them, in fact, spread out all over the world, just these little small enclaves through which it could uh, move its men, project its force and influence, uh, and, and control much of the planet. It's interesting that this kind of language was mainstreamed. I mean, we saw mainstream media publications, politicians, and scholars even kind of abandon those imperialist uh, frameworks um, and, and kind of hid the empire in a sense um, moving forward from that point. Yeah, that's right. And one thing that's really interesting about you know, the United States after 1945 as compared to right after 1900 is how little open talk there is about the colonies that the United States still has. The Philippines becomes independent uh, pretty quickly after that, but Hawaii and Alaska, it's not until 1959 that they, that they become states. And the United States still has as territories, 
Guam, it still has Puerto Rico, it still has the U.S. Virgin Islands, it still has American Samoa, and now has the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. Uh, so, but it's really hard to find a lot of forthright discussion of these places uh, on the mainland, and far less so than in 1900 when the overseas parts of the United States were places to be openly celebrated. U.S. rule over these territories today may be hidden to us on the mainland, but it's not hidden to the peoples living there. Daniel, they live under U.S. rule every day. What rights and political power do the people living in these territories have? Yeah, so that's a really important point to make. It's true from the perspective of the mainlands that a lot of people have a hard time keeping an eye on the overseas parts of the United States, but the reverse is absolutely not true. There is no way that you can grow up in Guam and be confused about whether Guam is part of the United States. You see the stars and uh, stripes flying. That's the flag of the country. The president of the United States is the president of your country because you are part of the United States. Uh, the bills, the money, all of that uh, you know, attests to U.S. sovereignty. Uh, and yet, despite the fact that these places are unambiguously part of the United States, I mean, look, U.S. Virgin Islands, American Samoa, it's in the actual names. Nevertheless, despite this, uh, it can be, you know, the people who live in such places have a restricted set of rights. So um, they don't have rights to meaningful representation in Congress. They can, uh, in cases, vote for delegates who will be physically present uh, in the Capitol, but those delegates don't have effective voting rights. And that matters a lot. And it's, it's not entirely surprised that funding, federal funding for territories uh, is consistently lower than what it is for states. In fact, when there's a federal law passed, it doesn't automatically extend to the territories. Usually there's a kind of separate settlement, and often if that settlement involves funding, it'll be lesser. And you know, it's not entirely a shock, once you think about that, uh, that every territory is economically, uh, has an has a average income that is below every state in the union. Congress and Congress alone uh, gets to decide who becomes a state. And um, Congress has you know, been fairly uninterested over the last hundred years of admitting places like the U.S. Virgin Islands, Guam, American Samoa, um, Puerto Rico to statehood. Uh, but why has Congress been uninterested? Well, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that folks from the territories are disenfranchised or subordinated by every branch of government. So it's not just that if you're not a state, for example, if you're Puerto Rico, uh, you don't have delegates in Congress who can effectively vote in Congress. It also means that if you're in Puerto Rico, you can't vote for the U.S. president as long as you're in Puerto Rico. And also, according to the Supreme Court, uh, the Constitution also doesn't fully extend to the overseas territories of the United States. So it's actually fairly hard for people who are living in the inhabited territories to get a full voice uh, and to get the kind of political momentum, I think, that would be required to change the shape of the United States. So yeah, you're right. There is not a lot that people in the territories, at least on paper, are able to do. And that's possibly one reason why there has been in the history of US empire, a history of, among other things, armed insurrection. So US uh, annexation of the Philippines was quickly followed by a large and bloody war, a war that we think killed more than three quarters of a million people, uh, many of them dying from disease, uh, almost all of those people who died Filipino, uh, a war that extended from 1899 to you know, petering out by 1913. It was the second largest, longest war that the United States ever fought. Uh, that was a really serious war, 
And Filipinos couldn't just vote and decide they wanted independence. If they wanted independence, the only way they really had to get it was to fight for it. In 1950, Puerto Rican nationalists staged a seven-city revolt on the island. They took government buildings. Uh, in one city, it had to be uh, suppressed by air power as planes flew overhead and, and strafed a U.S. city. So there have been moments of, of violent resistance, and that has a lot to do with the fact that there's really no official on-paper mechanism by which uh, colonial subjects can determine their own status. Speaking of colonial subjects, Daniel, of course, with the seizure of land comes this forced homogenization. Uh, what practices and effects of forced homogenization were employed by the U.S. homeland on its colonial subjects? Yeah, so if you think about what empires do, a lot of their day-to-day -day activity involves coordinating, involves taking a foreign patch of land and making it compliant in some way with the norms and practices of the motherland. So that might look like laying down railway tracks of you know, just the right gauge, uh, or it may look like educating students in schools and educating them to speak, in the case of the US empire, English. And the US did a lot of that in its colonies. It, it tried to, first of all, to get its colonial subjects uh, to fully understand that, that, that they were now part of the United States, that they had to venerate the flag, uh, that the money that they carried would have you know, George Washington or similar people uh, on, on the bills. Um, but the United States also pushed English as a language of instruction throughout its empire, trying to get people who had you know, spoken Spanish or Tagalog or Chamorro uh, to speak English. Uh, and you know, it had varying amounts of success in that. But you know, part of the point of empire is to take um, foreign places and to, to make them more domestic, right? to make them sort of work from the perspective of the motherland. And of course, that's what the United States did throughout its colonial empire too. The U.S. empire is big in terms of its formal territories. It gets a lot larger, of course, when you're talking about the 800-plus military bases around the world. It gets even larger, though, when you're looking at the financial and cultural control. Yeah. The U.S. dollar, the English language. This was a part of your book that I had never really thought of before, and I found it really um, important. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, so one thing is really important to recognize is that even though the territorial, the physical size of the United States' territorial empire um, shrinks uh, after 1945. That's partly, be first of all, there's still uh, territories, there's still inhabited territories, there are hundreds of military bases, uh, but part of the reason the United States can make do with that kind of empire, what I call a pointillist empire rather than a large colonial empire, is that it gets really good at projecting its influence across, across borders. Daniel, is there any comparison in the world today to the United States? Is its scale matched by any world power in history? Um, so right now, the United States is the dominant power on the planet. And you can see that in a lot of ways. You can see that through uh, the, the, the predominance of the US dollar, the spread of the English language. But you can also see that, and this is really important to recognize, in the territorial spread of the United States. And you know, I said that the United States has hundreds of foreign military bases. Just for perspective, every other country combined, if you take all the foreign bases that are owned by every other country combined, you get a number around 30. Hundreds, like we think 800 compared to 30. That gives you a sense of the outsized presence militarily, which is matched by an outsized presence culturally, linguistically, financially, of the United States in the world today.
Seems like a lot of Americans are aware of outposts that, that the U.S. maintains around the world, but they still are kind of convinced that just the basis of, of U.S. imperialism, I guess, is benign, that the U.S. empire is a benign force acting in goodwill to stabilize the planet, to act as the world's policeman. Um, why do you think this is? Why is there such a large disconnect, not only in academia, um, but just in the general populace about what the U.S. is doing in our names? Yeah, so I think that there's a, I mean, there's a real argument today, right, about the nature of U.S. foreign relations. Uh, is the United States the last bastion of liberty, uh, or is it a world-dominating force? And, you know, we're seeing this argument play out in the headlines. Uh, we're seeing it play out in, in very public ways. What I think people don't get and what I think distorts that argument is that usually that's an argument about character. And it's assumed that, you know, largely assumed that the United States is, like other countries, is just you know, constrained within its borders, and then it has certain policies, good or bad, and, you know, other countries have policies, good or bad. Uh, but that's not quite true. The United States actually uh, embraces the entire planet. It has military bases, you know, virtually in everyone's backyard. If it's not in uh, a single country, it might be in the country next door, and there might be a number of bases in the country next door. And that gives the United States just this, this unusual position that I think is hard for a lot of people to get fully in view, but it certainly makes the United States a uniquely powerful and privileged country. And I think without really understanding that, it's actually quite hard to understand U.S. foreign relations or even U.S. history. Right. I, I call us empire babies with this kind of extreme historical ignorance and lack of understanding about, you know, the nature of U.S. empire and imperialism. But it seems like almost British people are at least aware that they live in an empire and that, you know, right. Britain has done some horrible things, but Americans still, still seem a little bit blissfully unaware of, of what's going on here. <laughs> so, so there's a really good example of this, and, and that is after September 11th, uh, after Osama bin Laden had, you know, masterminded this uh, set of attacks uh, on the United States, on the U.S. mainland, in fact, the common question was, why do they hate us? Right? What, like, what is it about our character that they don't like? What are they not getting about us? Uh, and, and there was this sort of shirt rending and confusion in the United States about how could this have happened. But, you know, look, Osama bin Laden had been perfectly clear about his objections. Uh, you know, he had a lot of them, and the list could be extensive. But there was one thing that Osama bin Laden kept coming back to. It had been sort of, you know, why he started his jihad against the United States. And it had constantly been a core issue, which is a U.S. base in Saudi Arabia, in Saudi Arabia, the holy land containing Mecca and Medina. That had been a major issue, not just for Osama bin Laden, but for a number of Saudis. Uh, it turns out that stationing a base in someone else's country can be a really uncomfortable thing. In fact, that's part of why the United States had a war against Britain for its own independence, was that the British had been stationing and quartering troops uh, in uncomfortable ways in the North American colonies. So it's not entirely a surprise that other people all around the world, and I talk about this in, my, in various parts of my book, would react with protest to U.S. bases. But nevertheless, the inability of a lot of people in the United States to recognize that there is a very real territorial and colonial history that connected the United States, this man so seemingly far off, you know, from Saudi Arabia at that point in Afghanistan, uh, that would explain this besides like just Osama bin Laden's decision that he doesn't like the personality of the United States. The inability of a lot of people in the United States to recognize that history, I think that's a classic example of the way in which, you know, territorial empire, the actual space of empire, uh, gets obscured and then makes everything a lot more confusing.
Thank you for listening to our Empire Files podcast. Help keep us independent and ad-free at patreon.com slash empirefiles. And be sure to catch our newest episodes by subscribing to our YouTube channel.